Hello, and welcome back to the 17th TFA Daily World Cup podcast of our World Cup series. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and we have another exciting episode for you all today. A giant killing took place yesterday as Morocco held their own against Spain, who rocketed up the charts to be one of the favourites to win the tournament outright after a 7-0 victory over Costa Rica on the opening game week. However, Valid Rograghi's men held firm for 120 minutes, denying Luis Enrique's side goal-scoring opportunities before taking the game to penalties. And Akraf Hakimi Penenka, four days on from Antonin Penenka's 74th birthday, sealed Morocco's place in the quarterfinals. An extraordinary feat for the Dark Horses, who are yet to be defeated at the World Cup, and have conceded just one single goal, which was coincidentally an own goal versus Canada in the group phase. The Atlas Lions will now face Portugal, who emphatically put Switzerland to the sword with a 6-1 thrashing last night. The big news from the game was the absence of captain and record goalscorer Cristiano Ronaldo, who was put on the bench by Fernando Santos when the lineup was announced. His replacement didn't do too badly, though, as the 21-year-old Gonzalo Ramos of Benfica bagged a hat-trick for the Euro 2016 champions, while 39-year-old veteran Pepe, Rafael Guerrero, and Rafael Leao sealed the victory despite Manuel Akanji's consolation in what was one of the most one-sided fixtures so far in Qatar, without doubt. In this episode, we will look through the tactics of both games, seeing how Morocco and Portugal progress to the quarters to set up an intriguing tie this weekend. Thankfully, to help me unpack all the action, I'm joined by TFA analysts Brian Marquez and Satish Prasad. So without further ado, let's dive right into the analysis Brian, Satish, thank you so much for joining me today to review another excellent 24 hours of World Cup action. Let's jump straight into things then and start with the unthinkable, as Morocco sent Spain packing in the last 16. The second time, La Roja have been eliminated in the uh, World Cup last 16 in consecutive tournaments. Spain have now failed to win a knockout match since beating who? The final, right? 2010. Against Netherlands. Yeah, That's against Netherlands. It's the last time Spain won a World Cup knockout round, uh, which is quite... Damning, really. I mean, we spoke yesterday about, I suppose, the the issue relating international managers and how they should maybe only be given one World Cup term because things go stale very quickly. And then we use the example of Vincente Del Bosque, who won the 2010 World Cup and then won the 2012 Euros, playing some of the greatest international football we've ever seen. And then within two years, they were knocked out of the World Cup group phase uh, because they were completely stale. Everything had gone uh, wrong, essentially. So, yeah, but we'll start with Spain. After the 7-0 win over Costa Rica, they were by far the favourites. I think they they boasted nearly 80% possession in that game. Costa Rica didn't have a single shot. They were absolutely incredible. It was the most dominant display we've seen at a World Cup since Germany versus Brazil in, in 2014. And I'd argue it was even more dominant than that. Uh, Costa Rica literally didn't land a single blow on Spain. Straight away, they rocketed up to the top to be one of the Bucky's favourites to win the tournament. Then they drew to Germany, which is fine. That's not, a, I mean, let's be real, drawn to Germany, who were pretty decent in that game, isn't a, a bad thing, I suppose. And then they, of course, lost to Japan. And they were very nearly out of the competition. There was that three-minute spell where the world thought Costa Rica were going through with Japan and Germany and Spain were both going home. They made it through. They got Morocco, who people on paper thought was a relatively easy tie. They failed to, to score a single goal across 120 minutes of, of football despite dominating the, the possession. Satish, I'll come to you first. Talk to me about Spain's domination in that game then. 
Yeah, I think Spain, like, so uh, Morocco actually, they actually went into the game with a proper plan in place because everyone kept saying the key to, like, stop Spain is to, like, make sure Busquets doesn't see a lot of ball. And I think they did that pretty well. Although in, on paper, they were they played in a 4-3-3 formation while defending. They were in a 4-1-4-1 formation. Like, they made sure Busquets was in between the, the, like, the formation and made sure... They didn't like he didn't really get the ball, and he, they pretty much forced Spain to go play in the flanks. So, and although they pretty much although they succeeded in making sure Busquets didn't see much of the ball, I think Spain did re, like Spain were able to create chances. Like they created twice the more number of chances that Morocco were able to create. Like to be exact, Spain were able to create nine chances yesterday's game. So. I would say, like, the fact that Morocco were able to, like, neglect Busquets' presence really didn't affect Spain's game. Like, probably his presence could have made it, like, could have made better, like, could have a positive impact with probably an extra two to three chances. But still, creating nine chances in, like, in a round of 16 is very good. And they had 12 shots, like, on the whole, they had 12 shots. And I think what really needs to be, like, taken into account is, like, Although they took 12 shots, like they had only one goal on target. So by looking at this, I think the problem was in the final third, like mm-hmm. that, like in the finishing. So that was pretty much a concern. And due credits to Morocco's defenders because of out of the 12 shots, considering like one was on target with the remaining 11 shots, like five shots were actually blocked by the defenders. So yeah. I think there was also a defensive line clearance by Morocco. So I think that and Spain did have a bad leg because they had two shots on on the post. So I think in the last minute they hit the post and Gabby also hit the post in the starting few minutes. So to summarize, I think Spain should have been better like within the finishing range because since 2010, that is what I think they have been lacking. Like they've been good with passing. They've been able to rotate the position. Like according to Instead, they had 72% of the position and they were able to create nine chances, which is good. Like, I mean, 72% of position and only if they don't do anything with that, it's a like it's something to be worried about. But with nine chances, it's good. But again, the goals that actually matters. And I think Spain they lack a natural striker. I think 2010 they had David Villa, but post that they lack a proper striker. So I think that should be mm-hmm. something of their concern. On the other hand, though, over 120 minutes given away, just a handful of chances, I suppose, was not too bad for Morocco considering the quality that. Spain possessing this in the side, and I think how resilient their defensive has been. Really, they're they're, and it's not just their back line. You know, football's not that easy anymore. It's the entire unit that four one four when they go with. It's so compact and it's so resilient. And throughout the course of course of the tournament, they've conceded uh, one goal in four matches, and it was an own goal as well. So I mean, they could easily have kept four clean sheets out of four. It's absolutely incredible. The work Valid Rograghi's done in, in, in four months is absolutely incredible, really. And Brian, I'll come to you because Spain's uh, best creator, I suppose, in the game was Cesar Aspilicueta, who created two chances. I think actually throughout the tournaments, apologies, he was Spain's number one creator. He had uh, two chances per game. I think what Morocco did really well in this game is they funneled Morocco out, or sorry, they funneled Spain out wide. Obviously, Satish touched on it. They managed to stop the progression in the Busquets. But they also managed to stop the progression in the Gavi and Pedri. And then Spain liked to create this diamond in midfield with the centre-forward dropping deep. And then you have Busquets as kind of the, the base of the diamond with Gavi and Pedri as the sides then. They fully kind of had everything covered because 
the number nine would sit on the ten, or sorry, the 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 number nine would sit on Busquets, and then you'd have the two wide central midfielders would be able to cover them half space passes in the Gavi and Pedri, and then you have Sofia Amrabat, would who was we'll talk about in a second was is an incredible player, one of the best at the tournament so far, and they really nullified Spain's central threat. And Spain had to go wide then. What went wrong when they went wide? Because they didn't look comfortable. Spain, like, against Japan, they showed this kind of weakness against deep blocks, creating wide tread when the teams blocked their midfield. That is the most important part of their game because... Busquets is the first pass of the build-up, and then Pedri and Gabi find these spaces through the central areas. And that is what we saw between Costa Rica and Germany. I think that were two big games for Spain. Even if they drew against Germany, it was a brilliant performance. And against Morocco, it's maybe one of the toughest sides defending on a mid-block in the World Cup. Uh, the commitment and the maturity from the players to defend it's absolutely amazing the wide wingers came very deep to find to form a 4141 and they were trying to all central areas being more on the half spaces that wide and as you said Busquets was totally marked by their number nine, and that was the main reason why Spain couldn't find the con- not the control of the game because they have the possession. They couldn't find like that quick and speed ups from Busquets to the possessions of the game in one or two touches. That is what he does on a basic on a yeah on a constant. In, in in Barcelona or or at his peak or against Costa Rica and Germany he was massively and then Pedro and Gavi also man marked and when you have behind a man like Amrabat I think kind of injured before the game and he was he uh, made that himself he said he uh, yeah. was really injured before the match but he didn't want to let his country down which is so noble albeit um, I don't want to say stupid because it's not because. His country did need him, but it, it was dangerous, I suppose, is a better word to use. Oh, yeah, of course. And I think he said that he he was trying to heal himself with the doctor till 3 a.m. Yeah, he was taking injections and everything to, to get fit. Yeah, that is, that, is, that is crazy. To, to see that type of, of commitment is is crazy yeah and it's you can see Hakim Ziyech running and defending and that is only because he it's national team and and that is like a total different context it's absolutely mad how the context changes between teams football teams and national teams but Spain then when they found the white players and I think this was a problem that lasts throughout the tournament and it is the positional football that Guardiola and Luis Enrique wanted to play every time. It's with wide wingers, with an incredible 1v1 dribbling ability and good pace and good change of rhythm to create threats from the flanks. And I didn't see that 
only when Nico Williams was subbed in, in in the game. And literally when Nico started to play in the game that he was subbed in again, that was when Spain literally find the way to maybe create create some threat against Morocco. Mm-hmm. At some moment of the game, I was thinking they, they're going to break the block because um, they were in a moment Morocco was too separated maybe and long balls to the wide areas with Nico were trying to, to work because of his pace and dribbling. That was, that was lacking throughout all the game for Spain because the midfield was totally marked, totally blocked and you just have to find some other ways and this is the way we have seen in their teams like Neymar, Messi obviously, but Guardiola when he played with Pedro at Barcelona was this mm-hmm. kind of player, Riyad Mahrez, that is the kind of position of football they, they, they like to play because they are very similar in their approach. Let me, let me pose a question then to you, just on the back of that, because while well, it's, it's fresh in my mind. Spain had the most distinct style of play going into this World Cup. And even at the tournament, they had the most distinct style of play at the tournament. And they were knocked out of the last 16. Does that prove, or not prove, you know, I'm happy to have a debate on this, that maybe there is a reason why international, international teams struggle to have a distinct style. Maybe the flexibility that many teams have shown, like France in 2018, and, you know, Germany even in 2014, they've showed that flexibility, They, you know, not to be, I suppose, as rigid in their approach, that they can change their approach from game to game. Does that show that you need that on the international stage? You can't play like a club level because you, ultimately, like in a league, if you lose, you can go again next week and get three points. In a knockout phase, if you lose, you're out. Satish, I'll come to you first, and then Brian, I'll ask you your opinion on it. Uh, I think it depends on the coach, because at few times, it's the identity of the country. Like, in Spain, it means it's possession football, you know? like So that is, like, their identity, and no matter what, win or lose, like, few coaches, or even the fans wouldn't be wanting to lose their identity. Because, let's say, Spain starts sitting back, defending, and they start attacking in counterattacks. If that becomes their identity, then it won't look like Spain because we all know, like we have been seeing Spain like I mean, I've, like for the past few years now, and we know Spain. Like when someone says Spain, you like when in terms of football, all that you could think of is possession-based football and the four-three-three and sorts of that. So that is sort of their identity. But at the same time, from an opponent point of view, you become too identical. Like you I mean you you find ways to break their team down. So I think it's. So I think it's important that you hold on to your identity, but you also make sure you have different types of plan under your sleeves. So that way you stick to your identity and at the same time you surprise the opponents by bringing something out of the box. So I think it should be a balance, but I think something's more important is to stick to your identity. I do agree to a certain extent. The reason I, I struggle to fully agree with you is because, yes, they need to stick to their identity, but they're not the only team in the world to play with, with the ball. I know France at the minute are a very possession-dominant side, but if they wanted to be, they can sit back and form a compact low block and defend and keep you out and shut you out, you know, deny you space in behind their back line. And they've shown in the last, I mean, four years that they're incredibly successful at that. Brian, I'll come to you on this, though. Would you, would you agree or would you disagree with my, my statement then that maybe you 
can't be, and I suppose Satish, you touched on it too. You suppose you can't really be as identifiable, almost, if that makes sense, on the international stage. I I, I agree. Like, and that's why I think having like this type of target man and pinning number nine, it's more comfortable for this uh, for the national teams because. You don't have the the time or the yeah the time to work on a false nine or a striker that drops off and all that. So it's more comfortable and it's more easy to have a target man that scores goals. And it's simply a striker that pins through the middle, and he knows his work. Obviously, you have to train him and you have to work with him because that that is your work. But that is your, that is your job. But it's. I see this question in this context. Obviously, um, it's not the same, but like in the Champions League, with direct teams winning rather than positional teams. Well, Real Madrid are a good example of that because they're not. Yeah, you can't overly identify Real Madrid style of play. But last season, they were able to defeat Chelsea, Liverpool, and Manchester City, as well as PSG, I believe. <laughs> You know, playing yeah. a style that they can press high, but they can sit deep. They can hit you on the break, but they can hold possession in knockout football. Exactly. And that's why I think direct football at knockout stages, it's being like the dominant uh, style of football. I think only one team won the Champions League in the past, being positional. Chelsea and Bayern, and Bayern wins it, won that Champions League like that was the COVID one, I I I think so. It, it's kind of um, the same debate from the Champions League in direct teams and just it, teams like Argentina play with the ball and they are not that direct. Brazil play positional football here, but it's the kind of guiding your team, like playing like a football club one that experiment may have failed for recent recap but but see even even in relation to brazil i wouldn't classify brazil in my own opinion as a, as an identifiable side as much as spain are uh, they are yeah, exactly. they are positional but you can't tell me that they they have such clear structures in every single phase i mean a lot of their final exactly. third play is is very off the cuff and that, that that's scintillating we saw that on on you know against South korea but they they don't they don't I know exactly how Spain are going to play, and I'm not even a coach. I can sit there and watch. I know the patterns they're going to play, the way they're looking to build up in every single phase. Yeah. Whereas Brazil, I feel like in, in international teams, you do need a bit of, um, you know, just a bit of enigma about you, if that makes sense. A bit of things that people can question. They don't know what you're going to do. Yeah, and it's like Brazil really well Tite said I think it was after the match or before the World Cup I don't know this quote but he said like he his team to be positional but to be Brazilian inside the pitch with not that total structures yeah. he wanted his players to be mobile and to create 2v1 combinations and that's why it's a different team Brazil and Spain because it's totally what you said you know what Spain structures, movement from their players, zones they're going to be occupying, and how they're going to play. Because it has worked very, very hard on this 
philosophy on Spain with the same players. And that's that's why his team was like that in the World Cup and all the, the people really surprised because he played with literally the same players. So I, I think it was Thiago the only one um, absent between the Euros, well, Sergio Ramos as well. I don't, I don't remember that well, but, but I think Thiago was one of them. And that's why his team was like that. But, you know, it, it's the same debate from yesterday. I think, like, always it, it's a valid play way to play football. But mm. I think it kind of failed. It kind of failed against a direct team. And I think his coach from Morocco has seven games on charge. Isn't that correct? Yeah. That, that is mad. He's only been in charge four months and he barely took any friendlies before the tournament. It's, 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 it's amazing yeah, considering how, how well they've done. It, it's amazing and, and it's like, it's cliche, but it's football. and Direct football has been dominating for, through the years. Like literally for years, and I will put a disclaimer out though that you know, if Spain go through, we're not having this discussion because ultimately it's hindsight's twenty twenty. And if Spain go through, we're literally not having this discussion. And I'm not an idiot to just you know to sit here and just completely put my viewpoint across without acknowledging that side. I know for a fact that's true because again, football is a sport that's very much uh, people think of in hindsight. I suppose you know. The after effect of a result always dictates the narrative. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. But let's just discuss Rodri's quotes really quickly because this does play into the, the, the debate we're having. I'll read Rodri's quotes out. Of course, Rodri played centre-half for Spain throughout the tournament and he is Manchester City's midfielder as well. He said, Morocco offered absolutely nothing without disrespecting them. In the game, they did nothing. They just waited for the counters. They stayed behind and tried to counter us. Satish, is is you know again we're bringing up a debate here that I suppose it's as old as as the sport really in terms of how what's the right and wrong way to play football. Jurgen Klopp has been very vocal about this before, especially against teams that uh, he doesn't be. I wonder why. And I know for a fact, especially against Atletico Madrid in the Champions League in 2020, the game before COVID, I believe Atletico Madrid knocked Liverpool out of the Champions League at Anfield, to which. Klopp had a bit of an outburst in his press conference, citing that he doesn't understand why Simeone's teams play the way they do, because they're not attack-heavy, I suppose, is what he means. They do look to sit deep and hit you on the break. Rodri, of course, is alluding to the fact here that Morocco just sat deep for 120 minutes and denied Spain goal-scoring opportunities. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think there's, do you think it's arrogance, as I suppose, will start being a bit brutal? Do you think it's arrogance from Rodri and from anyone who, who believes that there is just one way to play football and that's with the ball and to play with purpose and, and you know, attract, attraction, I suppose, attract the football. Yeah, I think that was arrogance and I completely do not accept with what he said because Morocco, of course, they did something. That's why they, like, at the end of the full match, they were able to win, right? Because that could have been the plan. Like, imagine Morocco going out, like, you no, know, like, going out, pressing high, like, Spain would have been be able to get the space yeah, in between, and they would have been able to, to exploit. So I think this is their tactical way of playing, and there's nothing wrong with it, because mm-hmm. there's no one way of playing football. It depends on the team, it depends on the opponents, it depends on the day, so everything's based on that. And Morocco, like, although they were looking to attack in the counter, like, they're planning to, like, attack in the transition, of attacking transition, 
I think they did a very good job defensively because they were able to restrict Spain's expected goal to 0.98. And meanwhile, they itself had an expected goal of 0.84, which is not very... Like, the, the variation is very... Over 120 very minutes as well, under one yeah, yeah, exactly. for Spain is pretty pretty decent. Yeah, and it's very similar to what Morocco has to offer. Like, 0.98 and 0.84, the difference is only 0.14. So, in terms of that, I think they were quite similar. But at the same time, they could have been better in terms of transition. Like, they could have probably... There were chances where they won the ball, but they weren't able to get... Like, they quickly lose, lost possession and they went back to defending. And the fact that Morocco had only zero corners in the entire game, I think that pretty much sums up, like, their tactical way. Like, they didn't want to go attack fully, but they relied on the transition. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, I do agree a little bit that it was... Arrogance, I suppose, from Rodri, and I suppose it was in the heat of the moment. He is frustrated because they couldn't break Morocco down. So there's a bit of leeway needed to be put in there that he was clearly frustrated. But Brian, I'll come to you. Uh, one of the most damning parts of Rodri's comments is the fact that he doesn't, uh, I suppose, he doesn't acknowledge the fact that Morocco probably don't have on paper, or especially in the squad, as good as a team that. Spain have, and that's not to disrespect Morocco. They have some excellent players. I mean, Hakim Ziyech and Amrabat, and even, I mean, like, uh, and Nezri up front plays for Sevilla. Some unbelievable midfield uh, players throughout the squad. But they don't have, I suppose, that many play- that many great players, as opposed to Spain. And Rodri doesn't acknowledge the fact that maybe there needs to be a contrasting style in order to you know, to, to, to make the game interesting, I suppose. And this is what I asked you yesterday, and I'll ask you again. For me, two different styles make an interesting game of football. If everyone plays the same way, it's boring. What are your thoughts on that, then? What are your thoughts on Rodri's comments overall and what I've just said? Well, Rodri is obviously mad and he's on, on the heat of, mm-hmm. of, of the game. But I don't think if you ask him again today or before the match about these teams he's going to say that yeah because i think this is a very common narrative at spain this type of uh, uh, fans or even footballers and coaches saying like like the teams that only sit deep and defend and then go to the counter-attacking and and then go to counter-attack they are bad or they are poor or they are like th- that's not football why not you know why not you can do that that it, it's not written through a book that you cannot do that so what you the point you made is very clear so how morocco you have to expect that mm-hmm. with more with the quality you have you're going to face Morocco, and Morocco have been a defensive side throughout the World Cup, and even, and they are going to be even more against you. Yeah. Because one thing is, they're, because of the quality, they're going to sit back, but as well, they know that if they sit back, they're going to create problems for you because that is your weakness. And uh, th- th- to say, like, they were defending... Uh, I, I mean, that's no excuses. So you were attacking all the game. Why you, you, you don't score? So if they were defending all the game in, and you attacking, not all the teams in the world attack throughout over 120 yeah. minutes in a match. So you have to do something with that. 
and and but, Rodri and Laporte's ball, ball progression at this match was kind of poor as well. Mm-hmm. In, in in this kind of deep block situations, it, it was kind of poor. And I really, it's really surprising to see this kind of goals of Rodri because he played at Atletico Madrid, you know, the most pragmatic team in the world. And I kind of agree with Jurgen Klopp in the way that he said that why they play like that, because they have the talent to play attacking football. And to see one of them players talking about that to pragmatic teams and deep teams is mad. I think it's the kind of brainwashing he has now with mm-hmm. being coached by Rodri and Luis Enrique. But it, it, I, I, wrote, I read that in Twitter yesterday that it is a narrative that is making damage to the yeah. fans and to the coaches and to the football in Spain. And it's, but it's frustrating though because people think that there's I mean, you're 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 literally you're not acknowledging the fact that there's there's different styles of play out there. I mean, we spoke yesterday about yeah. Fernando Dinas, and I was I was critical of not the style of play, but the fact that um, it might not be able to carry, I suppose, over to Europe and uh, you know on the the grandest stage, of course, with Brazil at the World Cup. But never once did I acknowledge the fact that there shouldn't be other styles. There absolutely should. And Dinas's teams they play incredible football, and I want to see that. Play, if everyone played the same way, I wouldn't watch the sport. There'd be no point. It'd be so boring to watch. And just touching on that point as well, Brian, the guy you know very well, because you wrote an article, I believe, on uh, Julian Calero Fernandez's uh, Burgos in the La Liga Santander, I believe, who had the best defence in Europe at one stage, was asked in a press conference recently about styles of play, to which he gave an incredible answer. I don't have the full quotes with me now, but if, you, if you're listening to this and you want to check out what he said in English subtitles, go to Kyle Miguel's um, Twitter page on Twitter. Of course, he has the full post up and it's absolutely incredible how he, you know, he, his teams, and as you know, Brian, they do play quite defensive football, but he was asked about it in a recent press conference and he gave an excellent answer as to why uh, people that have this belief that there's one way of playing football, especially him being a Spanish coach in Spain, it's completely wrong. We will move on, though, to uh, Portugal's damning 6-1 victory over Switzerland. Satish, I'll come to you first. Uh, without acknowledging the elephant in the room uh, first, because we'll, we'll get on to that, Portugal looked good. Talk to me about some of their, you know, their, their numbers behind this, this emphatic victory, I suppose, in the last 16 over Switzerland. Uh, so I think the main reason is like Portugal, they looked comfortable, like they, they looked very fluid, you know, there was no hesitant, you know, it, it, they, they looked flawless while attacking. In terms of possession, both the teams like enjoyed a similar amount of possession, while actually Switzerland had 52% of possession and Portugal had 48% of possession. But what actually mattered is like how they made use of that possession. Say, for example, Portugal, they had nine shots, like 13 shots on total. While Switzerland had 10 shots on total, but you see Portugal had nine shots on target, which is, I think, out of 13 shots taken, they had nine shots on target, out of which six were goal, which is incredibly good. And Switzerland, on the other hand, they had like 10 shots, but they were able to only convert one goal. So I think the reason could be like how they were able to convert their chances, like Portugal were able to create chances. Like, I mean, Portugal were always creating chances, like so at this game they were able to convert it because they had they created seven, seven chances in this game against Switzerland and they converted six goals. So I think that is a very good stat and I think Goncalo Ramos like he is at very good form. Like 
he has at the club level he has 18 goals in five years so far so he is in a very good form and that was shown like you know like he had he even scored a hat trick so i think mm-hmm. that was a uh, output of it so and felix and bruno fernandes i think they were extraordinary yesterday like they were able to create chances you know so yeah bruno fernandes think... bruno fernandes has been so impressive at this tournament and i think he he's received a lot of criticism especially from manchester united fans from 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 a section of manchester united fans i think it's fair to say for yeah. his performances over the last 12 months but let's be real in at the world cup he has been one of the best midfielders by far yeah exactly and joao felix also i think is in a similar situation at his club level i don't think you know he's not able to shine as much as he is at the country level so yeah both of them like they did really really well for the club yesterday and yeah switzerland they could have done more with their possession i think they weren't able to progress the ball and able to like make the final passes i think that's where they lacked them but portugal at the other hand they made very well like very good use of their chances sometimes when i see scotland like 6-1 against portugal i love coming back to david moyes's quote uh, when he was manchester united manager in 2014 i think i can't remember the team they played i believe it was probably manchester city i think it was in the derby and moyes was asked where his team needs to improve and he said something along the lines of passing shooting crossing defending uh, scoring everything he literally listed every single trait any football team needs to just even stand on the pitch really so talking about switzerland you said they lacked kind of that end product i think they lacked they lacked probably everything of it i would imagine over the course of the game um satish you did touch on the elephant in the room well i suppose the the calf in the room in, in terms of Ramos. Let's talk about the elephant then, Bryant. He was on the bench, Cristiano Ronaldo. Um I think the media made maybe made a bigger deal out of it than it was. He seemed pretty content with it and according to Fernando Santos, he was okay with being on the bench. He made no fuss. We can only take his word for it. I do want to say though before we get into this, Fernando Santos has been known for being an extremely pragmatic manager uh, throughout his time with Portugal. I think in the last I think especially at this World Cup they've been they've been pretty pretty impressive going forward and I think it's fair to get to give credit where it's due and yesterday they looked just just incredible so we will now talk about Ronaldo Ramos replaced Ronaldo a 21 year old from Benfica and he scored a hat-trick he scored more World Cup knockout goals in that match replacing Ronaldo than Ronaldo has scored throughout his whole career uh, with Portugal Bryant First of all, what effect did it have on the team? And I'm not talking about, you know, morally. I'm talking about tactically. What did Ramos offer Portugal that that the greatest goal scorer, I think it's fair to say, of all time, could not offer them? Yeah, it's fair to say that it, it, it wasn't only because of Ramos, but his impact was a very good and very important to the team. But you touch a really good point on this Portugal team that Fernando Santos as well as they did the Shams they were in the same situation talented squad big squad but not playing that good football and in the at the world cup they are trying to change their ideas and identity and that is very good because uh, to change that is not very easy that is your ideas and mm-hmm. well I, that is really good to see so portugal changed that way of playing joao felix in a massive role like being the link up of the midfield and and the attack 
Bruno Fernandes, who, when he plays through the central areas, that is his position, not out wide like he would, like Fernando Santos was trying to do in the preview of the World Cup and all that. But the impact of Gonzalo Ramos was uh, very good. He's were very dynamic to making diagonal runs to one side to another, pinning center backs, his movements in the penalty box to kind of um, attract some player and then run back or run forward, that kind of um, run to evade the, the, the marking of the defenders. That impact, that movement and that intensity he played, it, it is the difference that what Ronaldo offered throughout the World Cup and his offering like throughout the the season and his last years at Manchester United and and, and all that it, it's the kind of well I mean Ronaldo is one of the best players in the history but he's like handling his career very strange and bizarre mm-hmm. having even problems with Fernando Santos that is like a friend for him we we saw that in, in since the start of Santos' project at Portugal. So, um, Ramos, was he scored three goals. I mean, I think he has more goals even than Messi at the knockout stages as well. Yeah. <laughs> Messi and Ronaldo. And, so, Messi's goal against Australia was the first time well, the first. Messi or Ronaldo scored at a knockout phase, I think, in the World Cup, <laughs> which is pretty um, bizarre. I mean, not in the knockout phase, I think... There was there was some sign anyway in a long time or something like that. It was pretty it was pretty bizarre stuff, considering they're two of the greatest of all time. I do want to just quickly say to one Ronaldo. I think people try and rewrite history a little too much. He's clearly struggling the last while, and he's let's be real. As much as he doesn't want to acknowledge it, I think he's his time at the highest level is probably passed him by now, and that's okay. It happens to every footballer. It happened to happened to Maradona. It happened to Pele. It happened to Rooney. Cruyff. It happened to everyone. But there's a lot of revisionism almost that Ronaldo was just this bang average player. It's, it's, it's like it, they talk about him in the same light as like James Milner, and it's just completely not fair. Ronaldo was one of the greatest of all time. I think it's 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 fine to acknowledge that while also criticizing his actions currently. I, for some reason, on online people don't seem to be able to do that, or in any discourse really. Um, which is is kind of it's kind of frustrating because I I see things on Twitter of people when he takes a touch saying. Has Ronaldo ever taken a good touch before? And I think, and I think, really, is that is that kind of a narrative we're putting out there now that the, one of the greatest of all time can't do that? It's it's completely fine to criticize him now to criticize his actions, to criticize the interview we did with Piers Morgan. I don't even want to say that name. I probably, I might edit that. I might not. Um, it's fine to criticize his actions. I just don't. I just don't think the revisionism is okay in terms of his overall quality throughout his career. I think it's quite quite strange. And I get a lot of people don't like Ronaldo, and that's I suppose if if that's the case as to why well then and that's that's fine i suppose satish we don't have um lucas on today to talk us through the betting odds he'd usually tell us about whether our team are our favorites or not just in your own i suppose opinion can portugal go all the way because if they they have morocco next of course if they beat morocco they get brazil which will be a entertaining game i suppose but it'll be a difficult game for them can they go all the way uh, I think it is very hard to say because it's football, anything can happen. But if they are able to manage the same way they were able to play against Switzerland, I think it might be possible. Especially, I think next, again, against Morocco, I think it should be a competitive game. 
like and based on the history and all that there are chances like higher probability towards portugal winning but if they win i think they have to face england or france so that is when you know they'll have to actually you know against especially if it's against france like they'll have it could be a very good game i think i'm not going to say they they're going to win or someone's going to win because it's going to be a 50-50 game but i think at the quarter final i think it Portugal if not comfortably i think even like they have they should get through because of all the players they have to their side and the, especially the way they played against switzerland they have to get through but i think it's in the semi finals i think they'll have to put an extra effort to get into the finals yeah i i would consider them definitely one of the favorites now i mean I'm, it's a bit of a, a mundane thing to say considering there's only 8 teams left in the competition <laughs> yeah i would i'd probably put them top 4 because you look at the the depth of players they have in the squad, plus the fact that they've already won a major trophy before on the international stage, would put them above many sides. So I think they're looking good, and I was incredibly impressed with Portugal yesterday. Yeah, Ronaldo, but, Ronaldo or not? Yeah, but what do you think if it's just a one-time thing? No, and I mean I'm not trying to like completely claim claim it as a luck or anything, but you maybe. See- but Switzerland did play Brazil also. And Brazil looked great against South Korea, but they, they did also play Switzerland and they struggled a little bit. You know, they only won one nil, and it came to a bit of a wonder strike from Casemiro, I suppose, from nearly outside the area. Whereas Portugal just breezed through. I mean, it was like a, it was like a, an exhibition match. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree. But still, I would like to believe that. You no, know, I all. I mean, being a football fan i think i i wish to see ronaldo on the pitch you know being his last world cup you know i would prefer him playing all the 90 minutes say for example like you previously mentioned if let's assume ronaldo had scored the hat trick like we wouldn't be having this conversation of course I mean, of course yeah and i mean yeah, ultimately I think, even talking about favorites i would have said spain were one of the favorites after beating costa rica 7-0 that they're already packing to go home so you know this is to sound cliche and i do sound like cliche this is the beauty of the world cup i suppose on knockout football it's why we all love it it's why we all love this festival of football that happens once every four years really exactly yeah that's why so if portugal is able to manage this form you know like they fluidless like mm. seamless football i think yeah by like you said they should be in the top two yeah bryant satish thank you so much for joining me today i, re- I really enjoyed this chat to all the listeners at home i hope you enjoyed too and make sure to tune in tomorrow as we preview all the action from the 2022 FIFA World Cup quarterfinals, which are kicking off this Friday. So make sure to check back in for that. And please share the podcast too, as it really, really helps us grow. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now.